Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. My dad put up the Christmas lights on the weekend. It was nice to see the International Space Station blink their lights in recognition while flying by. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. All right, Ontario has reported uh, today uh, 1,589 new cases, uh, 535 in Peel, uh, 336 in Toronto, two or sorry, 205 in York, uh, 83 in Waterloo. The rest of the units all below uh, 60, which uh, I guess is is stable. Uh, at that uh, that being said, lots are uh, are concerned as we do head into tighter restrictions going into. Uh, the winter. Here's what Mayor Fred Eisenberger had to say about where Hamilton is. In the summertime, we were allowed to go to a bubble of 10. And, uh, you know, I think people still think that that's in existence. It's not. Right now, we're, we're suggesting that you do not go out, that you stay within your own household as much as humanly possible, other than for emergencies. So if you're, you need to go to work, of course, you need to get to work and you need to get back. But then, you know, don't, don't go out and socialize and, you know, join up at the restaurants or join up in, uh, in other locations where, uh, you know, potentially you can bump into others that continue to, uh, you know, pr- promote the spread of this virus. And there's Mayor Fred Eisenberger speaking on the Bill Kelly Show earlier on this morning about uh, refocusing on uh, where we are and where we need to be in order to uh, flatten the curve, as we used to say way back when. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Your thoughts on uh, on Toronto and Peel moving into the gray zone, into uh, a total lockdown? And my goodness, it was. I guess it, we can't be surprised, but just the packed shopping malls we saw as people prepared for that. Yeah, I'm not really that surprised. I mean, we saw that today's the number is 1,600 in the province of Ontario. So the, we 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 needed a lockdown. The lockdown was imminent, and we were expecting it any day now. So. The fact that it happened is not a surprise to anybody. I think it will be very hard to find anybody that will say otherwise. Now, in terms of malls being packed, you're absolutely right. I think people rush to get their Christmas shopping out of the way because they suspect that the lockdown will probably carry us up until the new year. And so that isn't a problem. It indicates that people don't really understand the severity of why we had the lockdown. We saw the Prime Minister Trudeau today tweeted uh, a very telling tweet to just reemphasize the key messages that the COVID-19 pandemic is a serious one. Uh, because I, I worry that the, the seriousness of the pandemic uh, is not being emphasized heavy enough. And we need to do that by sh- sharing stories of what's going on in the hospitals. And currently, the hospitals are overburdened and under-resourced. And we need to keep that in mind as we move forward through this lockdown. Uh, as it looks now, it looks like now this current lockdown for in Toronto and Peel for 28 days, um, uh, what will 28 days do? Significance of that number. Well, we won't see the impact of this lockdown for quite some time because we have to remind everybody that, you know, when we go into a lockdown, the the, lap, the lag period between the interventions being put in place, and in this case, us not leaving our homes and practicing back to initial uh, tape hygiene practices, will take some time to reduce the numbers. So the point I'm trying to make here, Scott, is that we won't going to see a reduce in the number of cases by next week. It'll probably take a couple of weeks before we see a reduction in the numbers if we are successful in getting ahead of this. 
How concerned are you, doctor, with people moving from one zone to another? Like, for example, uh, obviously Toronto and Peel are in the gray zone. Pretty much everywhere in the greater Toronto, Hamilton area is in the red zone. How concerned are you, are people from going from one to the other? It does concern me, and it's something I've alerted to it before. I mean, it, it, you know, we are, we are a free country, and by that I mean we're mobile and we are able to move from one city to another. And the concern here comes exactly that, that people who are not in the red zone, who are in the red zone, will travel to gray and vice versa or whatever zone you're in. And, and that's difficult because that is actually a key indicator of community transmission of COVID-19. So we need and one way to address this, which is the question I get often, is that, well, how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, if we're not going to limit people's mobility across our cities because it goes against our charter of the Constitution, then we might need to explore rapidly deploying rapid antigen tests to everybody in Canada so that people in specific areas and zones can test themselves before entering others. And so it's about contact tracing and testing at a full larger scale. We've talked a lot, Ahmad, about uh, uh, rapid testing, fast testing, high-speed testing, and, and such. Do we actually have it? How much do we have? Because there doesn't seem to be the supply of that that we need. From what I saw from the government's resources recently, there was 3.3 million rapid antigen tests available in Canada right now. And they're being deployed for rural settings where they don't have access to rapid assessment centers, the ones that you and I would have. And so they're meant for people who don't have, can't go get to get tested. They can get tested in their own comfort or home. That's not the case in the U.S. We know that the U.S. is aggressively, aggressively uh, supporting this rapid antigen testing. I mean, we can see, you know, uh, I'll give you a very simple example. Last night was the American Music Awards. And if anybody was watching them, you could see that uh, uh, there were people in attendance that weren't wearing face masks. And they actually put a disclaimer that because we were rapidly testing people on site. Uh, and so the point I'm trying to make here is that other countries seem to have a lot better ability to deploy rapid antigen tests. And what policy experts and, health and public health professionals are saying is that we actually should get ideally to a place where every household, every family in Canada or every household period should be uh, mailed to their house a rapid antigen test so they can get tested in the comfort of their own home and know their status before they leave their house. So again, lots of chatter about this, but we're certainly not there yet. Is it that there are not enough of these tests to go around? Is it that they're going through to the higher priorities first? Um, uh, again, we, we've talked a lot about it, but it just doesn't seem to be happening. Again, is it that we do not have uh, the ability to do this or, or, or a policy in place? I mean, I'm not sure we have everything we need to do this, do we? Well, it's twofold. We need to secure more of them, of those right. antigen tests through our government. Our federal government is actively working at securing more of them. But there's also the issue that uh, Health Canada has not really approved its widespread use. Uh, and it's still under sort of uh, examination, for lack of better words. So we're still, Health Canada is still looking at its effectiveness at a wide scale. But the, 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 the key point to make here is that preliminary evidence around rapid antigen tests is very positive and that it does detect the COVID-19 virus. And so, and it has no negative side effects on people. Uh, and so that's why there's been a strong push now to really move forward on this in our sort of uh, efforts to make sure that we reduce the second wave and also to prevent a third wave because we're, we're right now in a second wave and I'm hoping that with the interventions being put in place that we will get better at this. But that does not mean that we're completely eliminating the chance of actually falling into a third wave.
If the U.S. can, uh, and again, we've seen the long lineups of cars and boom, 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 they're going through there uh, like a drive-through almost. If the U.S. can do this, why not Canada? Um, I, I had heard that Canada was concerned that these weren't uh, conclusive, that they weren't factual in the sense that they weren't as accurate as they needed to be. Well, I mean, that's why there's been a lot of investment into research to prove that they are effective and they might not get us. They're not 100 percent effective. So that is correct. Like they're not telling you 100 percent whether you have COVID-19 or not. There's a very slight margin of inaccurate results. The truth of the matter is I'd rather know for 98 percent that I might have COVID or not than not at all. So the point I'm trying to make here is that what we're pushing for is that even the 98 percent sensitivity or specificity of those tests is good enough for us to make sure that you know, we reduce the number of cases because, again, it has, it has no side effects on individuals, right? Uh, there is no harm in you getting tested. It's not like a drug you're administering to people that you worry that there might be long-term side effects. The worst case scenario is that you might be falsely positive for COVID-19, which means you're self-isolating. And again, the chance is extremely rare for that to happen. Hmm. Um, in round two, uh, uh, the modeling and the planning for all of this uh, and, and something that we heard uh, officials say uh, last week was uh, one thing that the modeling didn't account for was fatigue. Can you elaborate on that a bit more? Yeah. And so one of the things we, when we, when they build models, they, they enter into it key inputs or so when you build any kind of model, statistical modeling, you, there's something called inputs that get, get factored into it and it helps decide, uh, how that model will function. One thing they didn't put into that was the fatigue of people. Uh, and so that's where the statement is being made now. Like given the projections and giving the modeling data where we, we see the trajectories, nobody accounted for the fact that people are sick and tired of this pandemic. <laughs> I mean, you can see it on everybody's faces, me included, you know, everybody's really, really tired of this pandemic. And so when we get tired, when we get fatigued, we A, stop wanting to really listen to science and advice because we're just tired of it, and B, we're less likely to follow the instructions, and that was not factored into projection models. And the point to make there is that because of fatigue and, and this tiredness that we're all experiencing, the actual numbers might be a lot higher than what the model projected. If the model projected on people listening to the advice, the model projected the numbers based on what people will likely follow, it did not uh, factor into the fact that people are just tired of it. And do you think it would have affected the modeling that much? It would, I mean, certainly it has, because look at the numbers we're experiencing yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, you know, less and less people are listening to the advice, hence why we have high numbers. What message do you have for those who are in... Uh, in the red zone, I mean, lockdown, it's pretty obvious. You're not to go anywhere. Curbside, that's it. Schools are open. That's the great thing uh, in daycare uh, that were closed the first time out. But what message do you have for those that are in the red zone and, you know, could be butt up against those in the gray zone? Uh, look at the gray zone as a learning lesson. I live in a, in a gray zone. I live in downtown Toronto Core. And let me tell you, it feels like just way back in March and, and, and April now, like back at the first lockdown. You don't want that. And I think the idea here is that let's look at places that went back at the gray zone as an example of what we don't want to do and, and, and really look at our own behavior. I mean, the idea here is that we all need to just be thinking critically about what what can we do, what role can we play? Because I think when we give people the power and the autonomy over their own actions, then you empower them. And so when we tell people this is really in your own hands, so 
uh, for me, that's the advice I am following. I'm not, I'm, I know the science, I know the evidence, and the evidence is clear around how to prevent COVID-19, and it's less outside exposure, the better it is. So I am exceptionally limiting my uh, exposure outside. I'm actually in complete lockdown now, uh, and that's the same advice follows to everybody else. Are you concerned that with everybody out and about this past weekend crowding the malls in order to try to get uh, supplies ahead of uh, a lockdown, that that will show up in a week or two? Yes, it will. That's for sure. And that's the concern we're having right now is that the, the big numbers we saw. I mean, also, we have to keep in mind that we don't know exactly those numbers. So if it is true that uh, there was a big number of people over the weekend that were going to stores, going to malls, which early reports indicate to be true, uh, then, yes, we're still going to see a spike in the numbers. We're still going to see a spike in the numbers in the next two weeks. And then hopefully with the lockdown two weeks into it, we'll start seeing a reduction in those numbers. Uh, moving forward, do you, do you see it being a possibility that these uh, restrictions, like, again, they're in place for 28 days, may be uh, lightened up by the time we actually do get to the holiday? Because that presents another problem in itself, right? Well, yeah, and I think that that's what we're all looking closely at. So the lockdown, in a, in a way, came at a good timing because – if it does work and we do follow the advice, then we could actually see an easing up on the interventions or the lockdowns by Christmas time, which is phenomenal for everybody involved. So I, I think that's the hope is that those lockdowns are happening now so that we don't a get into a much worse case scenario than we are in right now, but also that we can loosen things up come holiday time. All right, Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor, health policy expert, a Toronto and Peel into the gray zone today. The remainder of southern Ontario, certainly the greater Toronto Hamilton area, uh, remain in the red zone. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good news. Uh, we're starting to hear more and more about vaccinations. Uh, now we're up to two. A third one announced this weekend. Another vaccine on the horizon, this time from uh, AstraZeneca. Uh, they, they, uh, that company today saying that they are on late stage trials and that their vaccine is up to 90% effective. And also the good thing about this vaccination is it doesn't have to be stored at the uh, colder temperatures that the initial uh, vaccine, I believe, from Pfizer uh, has to uh, be stored at. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Brian Dixon, professor at the University of Waterloo, teaches in the Department of Biology and Immunology, currently researching COVID antibody testing methods and can speak to the humane, uh, humane uh, humane, uh, immune response to the virus. Let's bring in Brian Dixon now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Doing fine. I hope you're doing well, too. Uh, fine, thank you. Tell everybody the difference in coming up with a vaccine and what you are working on with antibody testing. So what I'm doing is just testing the immune response to natural infection. So I'm monitoring people in the hospitals. I'm actually, I've actually just started a new project looking at uh, antibodies in people on the Waterloo campus. Just looking at it's a hotspot where people mix and there tend to be outbreaks on campuses. So I'm studying antibody responses and other immune responses in people on campus. So I'm studying the spread of the natural disease. Uh, Developing a vaccine would be developing actually a tool like the the AstraZeneca or Pfizer has to actually inject and induce an immune response. So what is the advantages? What are are the reasons for researching antibody testing? Uh, Well, certainly it it tells you who, who is immune 
It tells you, uh, I can look at the duration of the immune response, how long it lasts in different age groups. Does it last longer in certain age groups? Um, with the Waterloo campus, it's very diverse. We can, we can look at uh, the differences in immune responses between, say, ethnic Asians and Caucasians because we have a, enough students of different class, uh, ethnicities. So we can look at differences in the different groups and see who's more vulnerable, who's more uh, 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 responsive, and, and sort of help target where the antibodies or so where the vaccines might be delivered best. I'm sure that you don't have the answer to this, but how is it that with some people they're asymptomatic, don't even get sick, other people it's debilitating? Uh, it just depends on our immune responses. It, 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 it's a relatively complicated thing, but we all have a slightly different immune response. The proteins that respond in our bodies are slightly different for everybody, and that's sort of evolution, natural selection's way of making sure that the species survives. We all respond differently. Some of us will survive, some of us may not, but with the next disease that comes along, the, you know, others will survive and others won't. It's just a way of making sure there's enough diversity in the system that some of us will survive. So it's sort of uh, hedging our bets. How much are we learning from this experience? Because we remember when this first started, you know, February, March, April, uh, May, a lot of confusion. Nobody really knew what was going on. Not that we do now, but we're certainly far ahead of the game uh, compared to where we were uh, in, in March and such. Um, can you elaborate on that at all? Well, we're getting a bit better. I mean, we, we are figuring out the duration of the immune response. I mean, it, it takes time to understand how long it lasts because you have to wait for the immune response to play out. But we're certainly seeing in some people the natural immune response doesn't last long. We're certainly hoping that uh, with the vaccine, it will last longer. We'll be able to induce longer lasting responses. But certainly it, it looks like we're going to have to be vaccinated every uh, every year, a couple of years for this um, based on the studies we've got so far. So we have that much knowledge, right? And we're all actually hopeful that other types of immune responses, not just antibodies like uh, T cells, uh, the the other antiviral responses will kick in. And that's actually something we're going to study in our in our uh, experiments as well. Many talked when this first started about herd human uh, herd immunity and explain how that works and why it doesn't or does with COVID-19. Well, herd immunity is a concept that there's a certain amount of protection in the population when people are immune. So if 80% of people are immune or are protected from the virus, then the, the 20% that are not uh, protected, don't have antibodies or are not vaccinated, will be protected because the 80% that are protected will not spread it around. And so the people uh, that are uh, unvaccinated or, or, or haven't been exposed can be protected because it's not spread to them. That's the concept of herd immunity. And that's why when we say we need vaccination levels of like 60 or 70 or 80 percent, that's the amount we calculate we need to protect people. Um, it's not really working in terms of natural infections, because even in the best places where, where the, the disease is spread, I remember famously Sweden was going for herd immunity, but they really right. got up to about 20, 30 percent of people actually exposed and having antibodies. So we never really got to levels of herd immunity with natural infections. And that's why it's very important that we test the efficacy of these vaccines. If you get 90% efficacy, if 90% of people you vaccinate have a response to protected, then we're going to reach those herd immunity levels. Uh, your thoughts on the third uh, vaccination being announced today. Uh, it seems that once this is happening, it's happening fast and furious. Well, it is. Uh, there are many companies racing to get to the finish line here. And I think that, you know, it, it's, 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 it's all timing, and they're all getting to the point where they're getting through the phase three trials, and so we're going to see results, even from other candidates over the next little while. This one looks very hopeful. I mean, A, as you, as you pointed out, it doesn't need to be 
kept at ultra low temperatures. It can be distributed just refrigerated. The the other thing about this one is it's it's actually an inactivated virus that grows in cells. So it's not like the other two that we saw that were mRNA right. that have to be manufactured. This you can grow. Uh, and it will propagate itself. So they can produce many, many more doses much more rapidly. I think they're targeting 3 billion doses in 2021, right? So it, it can be made faster. It can be distributed easier. easier, And it seems like it's got good efficacy. Uh, and that was something that was groundbreaking with the first two vaccinations is that they were man-made. I thought that those were, they had the ability to produce those faster. No, it was the other way around. Uh, well, I think th- this is th- this is this is the one that will be faster. They can produce those, but the thing with those is you have to manufacture. What they're putting in is genetic material from the virus, right. and so they have to manufacture it uh, and and then ship it around and get it into you. So, so I think they were not looking at billions of doses in the next year or so. Um, certainly not three billion doses. This one you can just grow in cells in the lab, and then and then you inject the live virus into people, and it grows. It's it's inactive. It doesn't infect people, or, or it doesn't get them sick. So this one, it, it actually, I think, will will be able to be produced a little bit faster. Uh, so, in, as you mentioned, the other one, the other two, the first two, especially the first one, had to be kept at extreme cold temperatures. This one, yeah. not so much. Is that because one is man-made and one is uh, extracted from the virus, as you mentioned? I think in the case of that one, they, they were being very conservative. They, it might be stable at, at, at normal refrigeration temperatures, but they hadn't done the testing to be sure. So they were saying that it had to be kept ultra cold just to be sure that it was going to be stable enough when it was shipped around to be effective. Uh, these ones they've done the testing for. And in fact, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine is a viral, is an inactivated virus, and we know the characteristics of inactivated viruses very well. So that was an easier one to, to, to estimate. So more of a of an uh, advantage for the third one because of it does not need to be handled as delicately as the first two. Exactly. Well, there's no transportation infra- infrastructure to ship things at minus 80 degrees Celsius. Like that's yeah. a pretty cold temperature, and the world just doesn't ship things in large scale around like that. But refrigerated, we ship things all the time at that temperature, so it will be a lot easier to distribute this one. So how do how do countries, uh, municipalities, provinces, whatever you want to call your jurisdiction, how do you determine which one of these you use, which one of these is best for whomever? How do you decide which ones go to which countries? Uh, well, that's a very good question, and that's not a science question. That's a political question. Yeah. I imagine what will happen is that the countries will get their hands on the first one they can get, and they will start distributing. If they all look like they're effective and they work, They'll just get them as fast as they can and get them to the vulnerable people as fast as possible. Will one be um, better than the other in some form? Whether it is the fact that it it doesn't need to be transported at a cold temperature or what, but will one of these be better than the other one? Possibly. I think, you know, uh, one may emerge as as giving better protection. Like right now they're saying 90%. It's all based on small numbers. Like the, the first two are based on 100 or 200 people. The AstraZeneca one is based on thousands of people, like like 11,000 people, I think. So I, I think, you know, as we go along, we'll, we'll get a better estimate of those efficacies and we'll get a better estimate of the ability of the vaccine to present the disease, prevent the disease uh, over time. And one may emerge as better than the other, but it's hard to say right now. Um, will they all be available at the same time or just the the same way we've seen one come, then the other one come, then the one after that? Will they be approved at different times? Uh, I think 
think they'll probably be approved at different times, but I think, again, we're, we're pushing the timeline. So they should all be available roughly next spring. Uh, if there's a difference in times of availability, it'll be within you know periods of weeks. So, uh, Is this new one, uh, I've read that it was cheaper to produce in some way. It, would it be cheaper in the sense that, you know, with the initial production of it, or just would that include the transportation, obviously, with not having to be at such a cold temperature? I think it's cheaper to produce because once you make this virus with the spike protein from the SARS in it, as I said, it just grows itself. You just grow it in cells in the lab and it will grow all by itself. You don't need to actually do any manufacturing process, just grow it and harvest it. Whereas the other two, I think you had to actually manufacture and isolate the the messenger RNA. So the other two are a bit more complicated. Why one man-made, or sorry, why the two first two man-made and this one more traditional? Advantages to one over the other, why one was first? Uh, well, this one actually is, it, 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 the, the third one is man-made as well. It's a, it's a genetically right. engineered virus. It's a chimpanzee virus that we put part of the SARS-CoV-2 protein into. Right. So it is, it is a man-made one as well. It's just a different strategy. The first two are putting just the genetic material alone into our cells and allowing our cells to make the spike protein and respond. This is actually using a virus to deliver the spike protein inside ourselves. They're right. just different strategies. So, How concerned are you that this is all happening so quickly? Um, well, I think there's always concerns um, that, that it's happening quickly, and you want to make sure that the safety is tested. But I think this trial certainly has you know, tens of thousands of people, and there's no adverse effects. So that's giving you confidence that there is that it is going to be safe, and I think the others will have to go through uh, similar processes. Um, so I, I think you know it's hard to say everything is totally safe until you actually get it out and deliver it to millions of people. But um, but certainly there's a, there's a lot of confidence that these are actually safe enough, and a lot of the safety process is regulatory. It's it's having government scientists inspect it. And, and that drags out over years because they're not really a priority. In this case, we're, we're fast-tracking it all. So they should go through all the same safety protocols. We're just going to try and do it faster. Um, before a vaccine or any vaccines came on the horizon, many were hoping for, you know, even a 50% effective rate. Now we're seeing 90, 95. Are you surprised by those numbers? I am actually surprised. I, I, and, I, and I think that uh, a lot of us were... Mm, we're unsure what this technology would do and if it would be this effective. So it's it's pleasing, but it's surprising that it's this effective because, you know, vaccines aren't usually this effective right out of the gate. Brian Dixon with us, professor at the University of Waterloo, teaching in the Department of Biology. Brian, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked a lot on this show about mixed messaging, and I'm not sure that the messaging, you know, I think it was at the beginning of all of this, but after about three or four months in, I don't think there's really any mixed messaging. I think that the message just changes all the time because it's a very fluid uh, situation living in a global pandemic. I, I think the confusion or uh, uh, who's trying to sell the idea of mixed messaging is the opposition. I, I don't think we're really confused. I think they're just trying to make it sound like it's confusing. And there's a, a great article that uh, is in the National Post from uh, Randall Denley. Uh, and the uh, the title is, the, the headline is, Inept and Confusing. Actually, Ontario's COVID messaging isn't even really that complicated. The COVID situation can change rapidly. The government has to adapt and sometimes contradict what it told the public just the day before. And Randall Denley is with us now. Uh, also 
also a columnist with the National Post and Ottawa Citizen. Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Thanks. Good to be back on your show. You know, it's interesting that you uh, that you uh, wrote this article. I, I, I was thinking this, and people keep trying to hammer the message that the messaging is mixed. And I don't think the messaging is mixed. I think we're just fatigued about the message. We don't want to hear it anymore. Uh, but to say that it's 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 mixed, I think, is an inaccuracy that that really I think is a storyline that some are just trying to sell. What are your thoughts? Oh, I would agree with that. The basic message is it's pretty simple. The Ontario government for months has been trying to balance the needs of the economy with the needs of health protection. That's the message. And what that balance is changes a bit according to circumstances. I mean, it changed on Friday for uh, Peel and Toronto when it was announced that you know the so-called lockdown was going to come in. I guess people found that incredibly confusing, too. I don't know. But the government has to react to changing circumstances, so they can't give the same message all the time. And part of the problem is that every time Doug Ford stands up at 1 o'clock and speaks to Ontario, He's speaking to people who live in widely different circumstances. We've been pretty lucky here in Ottawa. Our numbers have been low, so, you know, we're in decent shape. Things are open-ish. But other places, totally different picture. So people say, well, you're saying go out and support your local businesses. Well, then he's, he's shutting things down. It doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense. That's not mixed messaging, thought, though. Right? That, yeah, that's not mixed messaging. That's just, I don't like the message. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I don't think... I, if I don't like the message and you can't stand there and give one message that would apply equally to everybody across Ontario, because yeah. depending on what part of the uh, the province you're in, we're all in different circumstances. So why are we seeing this now, Randall? Because when this all began, everybody, including yours truly, impressed on how every level of government and every different party, no matter what your political stripe, they're all working together. Now it seems that, you know, that's stopped and the knives have come out and, and it's not necessarily about working together anymore. It seems like it's, it's about picking apart anything we can and adding to the confusion. Yeah, it's probably because people are fed up, but I think there's a lot of politics in it too. If you're, uh, ahead of one of the opposition parties, you're not super keen on that. Doug Ford is doing a great story, or a great job, uh, you know, story. You don't want that out there. You want a contrary message. So it's got to be Doug Ford is doing a terrible job. Oh, what's he doing? Uh, mixed messaging. Yeah, that's it. I mean, to me, in a pandemic where people are dying and other people are losing their jobs, their businesses, even if there was mixed messaging, it wouldn't exactly be a top 10 problem. But it's something to talk about. And I think also some people in the media, basically every day their idea for a story is Doug Ford is screwed up details to follow. So I agree with that. Up. I yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. And even being in the media, it's, you know, it is the media looking for another story and there's, you know, nothing makes a great story like controversy and pitting yeah. one side against the other. So we're oh, as guilty absolutely. of it as well, I was drawn to conflict and, you know, I mean, rightly so, I guess, different points of view and all that, but, Sometimes I think people need to step back, too, and say, look, is there a real problem here? Or are just people saying there's a problem? Andrew Horvath has been quoted many times saying, uh, look, if I were premier today, we'd, uh, I'd have hired right now 10,000 personal support workers. An army of personal support workers would be in our long-term care homes. Okay, people report that, but I don't see too many people saying to her, but Ms. Horvath, where would you get them from? Are there 10,000 people yeah. who want to be personal support workers, but 
they haven't filled an application. What's the hang-up? I mean, some of these problems are very difficult to resolve, and that's one of them. You know, people are unwilling to do this work. It's great to say, well, hey, I hire all these people, but they have to want to do the work. And I, I think that I don't really think it's that constructive to be uh, tearing each other apart on some of these things, too, because I, I do think the government is doing the best that it can. They haven't gotten everything right. I think they've got most things right. I wasn't so sure about the lockdown in Toronto and Peel, whether shutting down retail made sense. Last week when they had the health briefing, I asked uh, Dr. Williams and Dr. Yaffe, look, is there a problem with retail? No, no, I don't really see any problems in retail. Okay, then why do we shut down retail? To me, if you're going to criticize the government, that's the most right. fruitful angle is to try to follow the logic and evidence behind some of the things that they do. Yeah, and there you go. I mean, that's not mixed messaging. It's questioning whether that's the right policy or not. And today, that is the question. Many are asking why Costco gets to stay open and the, and the mom and pop has to close. And and again, that's not mixed messaging. That's the message. We all get it loud and clear. It's just now we're questioning whether that's the right one or not. Um, you know, and we saw this the other day with the education minister, and they were contemplating because Quebec was contemplating whether to extend uh, the Christmas break for students. Uh, some universities have already done that. So obviously this came out as a question that was posed uh, to Education Minister Lecce, and they came right out, right out and stated that the plan hasn't changed. We plan to keep the kids in school as per normal. That hadn't changed, but then he was asked his opinion on whether he would look at this, and of course they look at everything, and then that story ran, and then the next day the Premier came out and they'd made the decision, no, we're not going to extend the school break. And then once again, speaking of the NDP, they're screaming that parents for an hour had mixed messaging well there was no mixed messaging the policy stayed the same yeah. you asked him an opinion and you asked him to expand on it and he did then you confused his opinion with fact and started to say well no they can't make up their mind what they're doing well no they made up their mind but they're thinking about all of this so well, it, it seems that the people yeah yeah and it seems the people who are asking for more information are the same people that are complaining that the mes the messaging is mixed yeah, these are also the same people who insisted that the schools would be death traps if we didn't have 15 yeah. kids in classes. Then the whole system would be shut yeah. down by now. It's just going to be a disaster. Well, it's actually worked pretty well. Now, there have been a few problems, but not very many. And I think that, you know, Lecce and the Ford government were proved right on that point, so far at least. But the same people are still saying, we insist there must be only 15 kids in classrooms. Well, for what benefit? Where would you get the classrooms? And where would you get the teachers? I guess boards are struggling now to find enough people to teach with the numbers that are in the classrooms. So it's another one of these things where, you know, if you listen to the opposition leader, you can just uh, dial up a few thousand more teachers because we decided to have 15 in a classroom. Or the schools to put them in. Yes, and I, I'd have a lot more respect for opposition criticism if they would ground it in some kind of practicality. Yeah, Here's a different way to do it that would make sense. It could be done. Let me explain the details as opposed to let me describe an imaginary world. In the imaginary world, with me as premier, everything would be far better. Let me tell you more about that. I just don't think that's it's not useful at the best of times, and it's especially not useful right now because, you know, we're in the middle of a difficult situation. There's big stakes for a lot of people. It, it's distracting, and I don't think it adds any 
information. The other challenge I think the Ford government faces in trying to communicate about this is that so many other people do. You know, Doug Ford has something to say. Dr. Williams has something to say. But, okay, well, well, here's Dr. Tam chiming in, and here's Justin Trudeau offering the useful thought that well, he certainly hopes no problems would make a decision based on economic needs of people. It's like, well, you know, yeah. You kind of yeah. have to weigh that somewhere in there, unless you're Justin Trudeau, and then you don't because he's not responsible. And there's an awful lot of – apparently we have in Ontario a vast number of people who have – tremendous expertise in the whole area of epidemiology and immunology and everything that's relevant, or even just MDs, but they all have an opinion. There's quite a few of them who are, you know, in regular conversation with the media expressing their opinion, which boils down to the government's got everything wrong. Every step they took was wrong, and it was too late. You know, I'll tell you some more about that tomorrow. It's, it's their opinion. They might be called experts. You can find other experts who would say the opposite. But it makes it difficult if you're the government to convince people that what you're doing makes sense because other people who seem like they might know what they're doing say, oh, no, 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 it's terrible. It doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a very difficult communications environment, I would say, for any, any government right now. So what should opposition do here? I mean, um, you, you know, again, just last week we had uh, the new liberal leader provincially speaking out and actually calling Doug Ford a liar because of the information discrepancies around what was coming out of the health uh, table and and what the thresholds were for the new uh, COVID-19 levels that were introduced. And, you know, there was even chatter about, they all got to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Well, here you are talking about mis- mixed messaging. And say this is a group, and I'm making this up, of like a dozen doctors that go in. They're all going to have different opinions. Some will be this way, some will be that way. But in the end, they make a group decision that we're works best for everybody and try to find that balance and then they make that decision yeah. the once that decision is once that decision to listen to all this yeah some of the contradictions exactly it, so what do we what, and say here's what i think we should do based on what i'm hearing from everybody so what do we want to have happen then the rest of the health table to come out and say well i didn't fully agree with that i wanted you know that's why you signed the non-disclosure so everybody's rowing in the same direction because if you don't that's what creates the mixed messaging so the same people that are complaining about the mixed messaging are complaining about having to sign a non-disclosure yes and if they don't like that they don't have to be on the health table they can be interviewed in the media every day offering their point of view you can't really be an insider and outsider at the same time but i i think if you look at the role the opposition could play, you see some useful pointers on that in terms of how has Ford gotten along with the federal government while all this has been going on? I mean, he's clearly not a big Justin Trudeau fan. I'm sure Trudeau was extremely hard on him in the last federal election. Probably not a love, love lost at some level, but they worked closely together. Ford's spoken well of Trudeau. He's spoken well of Freeland. Look, we need to work together to fight the pandemic. That's how it works. And that's one of the reasons why he's popular and Trill's popular too in regard to how they deal with this because people see them working together. That's what they expect. I think for the opposition, it would have been really smart to work together cooperatively with the government during this time. There will be time when this is over and they can go back to politics as usual if they think that's useful. But if they just are sort of out there, you know, shouting liar and so forth, 
how does that make things better for anybody? It's not true to begin with. And it just makes people more upset, more skeptical of what the government's doing, and less likely to follow along, which probably, I mean, I understand why people will question things, but ultimately, whether you believe in masks and so forth or not, the correct social thing to do is to wear them. We need to distance. We need to be smart about what we do. It's just, it's the world we live in right now. So I think, you know, people look to government for guidance on that. And it doesn't help when somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about says, oh, those guys are just a bunch of liars. Oh, well, maybe I shouldn't pay attention to what they say then. You know, the, the it was interesting, though. It was interesting, though, that once that was that was floated and then it, it appeared the public wasn't interested in that in listening to that. And then it disappeared. We never heard from them again. We, we didn't yeah. hear anything more on the liar front. It was gone because it didn't no. it didn't stick. It, it no. didn't land well with the public. People are concerned about what these restrictions mean to them, their job, their business. Are they going to have money flowing in? What about their health? Will I be able to get in to see my grandmother? They're very concerned right now with a long list of real-life things that are challenging. And I think there's a limited tolerance for opposition people sort of, you know, running on, waving their arms and say, oh, no, no, it's all wrong, it's all wrong. It just isn't flying, which is great, actually, but they might want to step back and think, is this really a good strategy for us? What will people take away from our rule during the pandemic? Because if they're liking the other guy, maybe now's the time to kind of, you know, work with them and get a bit of that uh, luster on myself. And then later I can tell people about how terrible he'd be in the future. Obviously, you're in Ottawa, Randall. Uh, we remember when Ottawa had a very high case, a new case count and was third, I think, behind uh, Toronto and Peel, and now has uh, has uh, done a great job of of combating this and flattening the curve when they when the second wave started to get out of hand. How do you, how do you explain to the rest of the country how Ottawa did this? Well, I think we have a couple of big advantages here in Ottawa. One is. Um, you know, very large federal workforce, almost all of whom are working from home. So that takes away a lot of the interaction that you would see in Peel, for example, where people are working in factories, warehouses, and they're working in jobs where they have to be in close contact with other people. We don't have that very much here. And, of course, the tech sector is the other big thing in Ottawa, and they're working from home as well. So the percentage of people working from home here is quite high, I think, relative to people in the hot spots. So we're we're fortunate in that regard. I guess we like to think we're smart, but I think we're more fortunate than anything else. Randall Denley has been with us, columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post, and you can read, uh, read his latest in the Post right now. Uh, inept and confusing. Actually, Ontario's COVID messaging isn't even really that complicated. Randall, thank you for the time and insight. Be well. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.